This B-side episode on cybersecurity was recorded on October 6, 2022, four days before the SIM Card Registration Act was signed into law by President Ferdinand R. Marcus Jr. on October 10. We'll hear from Francisco Ashley L. Acedillo, President of the Philippine Institute of Cybersecurity Professionals, who talks to Business World reporter Patricia B. Marisol about data breaches, data privacy, and data protection. Today we'll be talking about cybersecurity from the perspective of the national government. I'd like to start this conversation with a question about the SIM card registration bill. According to Senator Cynthia Villar, it's one step away from becoming law. I'm wondering though that why it took so long for legislators to think of registering SIM cards, especially since we've had mobile phones for over two decades now. Well, Patricia, the answer is simple. No? Because of the fact that Congress has the plenary power to legislate, this means that any and all issues and matters that need to be legislated come within the purview of Congress. Uh, that means that there are also other measures that need uh, their attention and depending on the priorities of each Congress, which of course is uh, reorganized every three years because of our regular elections, some items, for example, like SIM card registration may register well in one Congress and then they fall in terms of the order of priorities in the next Congress. So I'll give a concrete example. The creation of the Department of Information and Communications Technology, which is, of course, related to our discussion today. No? It was first proposed to be created as a department as early as 2004. It took Congress 11 years to pass a law to create uh, that agency in 2015. That goes as well for many other issues that need legislation, even in the case, for example, of uh, the SIM card registration. So I guess the silver lining of all these spam text messages is that it put the problem to the fore. And now, so now the Senate is tackling. Again, like many issues, there will have to be some sort of public clamor to address uh, festering issues and problems besetting our countrymen before something which is probably at the bottom rung or in the middle of the uh, list of priorities of Congress is catapulted to the top. Only then will legislation be uh, sort of speeded up in the legislative mill. We have a Data Privacy Act of 2012, which entitles individuals to be informed when personal information pertaining to him has been processed. Does the proliferation of spam text messages nowadays mean that there are more violators of the law? And if there are, are they being caught? That is the implication. I don't want to make a conclusive statement because that is a matter to be proven. But as a matter of implication, definitely. Because these personal information have to come from somewhere. And both government and the private sector are custodians of private information. So it remains to be seen which of these sectors, or maybe both, were the sources of the breach. If the SIM card registration bill, which I hope becomes a law, if it becomes a law, does this mean that these spam text messages would disappear eventually? Patricia, the SIM card registration bill will actually become a law. Unless it's v vetoed again, which I don't think it will be because it's been vetoed previously under the Duterte administration. And the fact that it became a priority measure means that I think one of the first steps under this administration is to once and for all address the problem of smishing and phishing. Although this is not a silver bullet, let me make that clear. The SIM card registration, when it becomes law, will not be a silver bullet, but it will be one of those measures that are necessary. People are also wondering how exactly does the government handle their personal 
personal data. Like for instance, during the pandemic, we've all had to use contact tracing apps like Stay Safe and Trace. What happens to our data there? Are they all encrypted, maybe in the blockchain? I mean, blockchain technology is just one of those available technologies that will allow entities, whether government or private, to safeguard information. By itself, it is a secure form of technology. Uh, of course, there's what we call encryption. And in both the private and the public sector, depending on what your data protection strategies are, encryption is a necessary tool. Not all information needs to be encrypted because at the very least, you have two considerations, cost and time. Only the most valuable, the most vital, and the most sensitive information need to be encrypted. So whether it's encryption or blockchain technology, any form of high-level security for data is necessary because, as the saying goes, uh, companies and uh, government organizations should not be asking themselves whether or not they will be hacked. They should be asking themselves when will they be hacked and then proceed from that perspective. All right. And does the national government also have a an assumed breach mentality? None that I know of, Patricia. How do the LGUs manage the personal data of their constituents? I mean, when it comes to their cybersecurity measures, is it entirely up to them depending on their priorities or their budgets? Or does the national government pitch in or help or at least guide their policies? So if you talk about LGUs in general, Patricia, uh, let's take it from the perspective of governance. So even from the point of view of governance, not all LGUs are created equal. So you drill down to that. So from governance to, let's say, cybersecurity and data privacy, same thing. All LGUs are not created equal. Therefore, some LGUs will be more suited to observe cybersecurity hygiene and uh, data privacy protection. Some others may have a notion of it. And worse would be LGUs, which probably don't have any provisions, both for cybersecurity and data privacy protection. Can you cite any best-in-class practices when it comes to LGUs that practice great cyber hygiene? I mean, of all the 1,400 LGUs here in the country, which ones are the best when it comes to you know cyber hygiene and cyber resilience? Well, unfortunately, Patricia, there is no mechanism, both in government and even in private sector, in a voluntary capacity that measures a cyber hygiene among LGUs. I think there has to be because that's how the government can ascertain how ready LGUs are in terms of protecting themselves from uh, cyber attacks. It can be as simple as protecting their public-facing websites, which is their primary means of communicating with their constituents as well as external, or it could be as uh, something as vital as protecting their local government employees, of course, their employment records, the uh, financial records, for example, of uh, the LGU if they plan to put them into their intranet or their local uh, area network. You know, th these practices all involve cyber hygiene. And therefore, it, it behooves each and every LGU, especially those that have public-facing uh, websites and those that have local area networks, to be very, very conscious about cyber hygiene. I wonder, does the national government have a budget for cybersecurity specifically? Well, it does this primarily two agencies. One is the DICT or the Department of Information and Communication technology, which has a cyber security bureau. Another, uh, and this involves more on cybercrime, there is a another agency which is under the supervision of the ICT and we call it the CICC or the Cybercrime Investigation and Coordination Center. The CICC and the Cybersecurity Bureau of the DICT both have budgets. Unfortunately, uh, the budget is not enough. Best practice tells you that any organization, or in this case, the national government, should spend anywhere between 2 to 5% of 
its annual budget for cybersecurity. And we are nowhere near that. And if you talk about cybersecurity versus cybercrime, cybercrime, especially cybercrime investigation, is after the fact. Cybersecurity focuses more on preventive and proactive measures. So if you talk about that, then it's only the Cybersecurity Bureau then which has a relevant budget for cybersecurity because CICC is for cybercrime investigation, which again is after the fact. So there is a gaping between government readiness for cybersecurity versus government resources to put that readiness in place. So I think over the next few years, especially under this administration, since President uh, Bongbong Marcos has uh, put it front and center in his uh, governance agenda that we need to digitalize, part of that agenda of digitalization is protecting our digitalization, and that is cybersecurity. Okay, apart from the SIM card registration bill, do you know of any other plans for the national government to strengthen our cyber resilience? Well, I know of efforts to draft a comprehensive national cybersecurity strategy, and to the credit of the previous administration, we did have one, but I am not sure how far it went in terms of uh, implementation. Therefore, it is uh, incumbent upon Congress to legislate it so that it will be an institutional approach, meaning year in and year out, there should be a strategy that is budgeted and that is implemented across all levels of government and across all three branches. I also want to talk about data. Is the government also working on consolidating its data from the different agencies to drive policy? Well, I think there has always been an effort of government to um, consolidate data. No? Uh, and I think uh, you can see this from the outset uh, in its effort to come up with a single government portal. Uh, that single government portal is supposed to allow people to access all types of government services using one portal. And if you access these services, at the back end of it is data storage. Now, data storage, of course, requires data protection. But we have not yet reached that level where data collected by one government agency will be processed and will be useful for another government agency. Take, for example, taxpayer data. Taxpayer data, for government to have a reliable database of taxpayers, it should be tied up to our Philippine Statistics Authority, right? Because this will tell you uh, what segment and how many members of our population are eligible or should be mandated to pay taxes. Because it's a cross-section of their personal information as well as their economic information. Now, that data is supposed to feed into the BIR's database in the same manner that it feeds into the database, for example, of the DOH, so that we will have a good view of the cross-section of the population and then that will allow us better to plan our um, health programs. That should tie up as well into our GSIS, our SSS. And the fact that we have multifarious IDs across government and not a single ID tells you that our government services are disaggregated and disconnected in the same manner our government databases are disaggregated and disconnected as well. Imagine if all of these data can be accessible from one agency to another, of course, subject to certain restrictions, limitations, and security measures. Imagine the kind of insight that will give our government planners in terms of budgeting funds year in, year out, and planning our government programs and projects. President Marcos mentioned that digital infrastructure is a crucial part of nation building. So I hope that he really focuses on interoperability between different government or organizations. And well, yesterday I was talking to some of my friends and I was mentioning that, hey, I'm going to interview someone about cybersecurity from the government's perspective. And one or two of them said that they wish that things were more streamlined when it comes to 
government transactions and government services. They wish that they just had, you know, one ID to present for their PhilHealth, their SSS, their LTO, or maybe just one password instead of having to memorize also so many passwords or having to carry so many IDs. I, I mean, is the national ID the first step to that? Well, the national ID is just the first step in a long journey, Patricia. Uh, let me give you a concrete example of a country that has put practically more than 90% of its frontline services online. So we're talking about, I'd like to use the term womb to tomb, okay? So let's break that concept down. So you can talk about womb. From the womb, so as soon as you're born, that is your first interface with government services. And what is that? Your birth certificate, which is under the purview of the Philippine Statistics Authority. The next time you need to access government frontline service is probably when you get admitted to your first government hospital for whatever reason. So that already should tell you that if you are not yet in the government database, uh, let's say, for example, you were born and you were not registered by your parent, then the next opportunity for government to put you in its database is through the public health system. So assuming you're not registered under the Philippine Statistics Authority, that is another opportunity, right? And then you enter the government system. The next time you will enter the government system is when you go to school because you will have your learning reference number, your LRN, which is under the purview now of the Department of Education. Then after that, let's say you go through the education pipeline and then you graduate, whether in high school and then you take up, you don't go to college. The next time is when you enroll in a vocational course. Now you will enter the system again because you will be under the purview of the Technical Education and Skills Development Authority or TESDA. It's either that or you go through another pipeline, which is uh, after you finish college, you will be entering the workforce. When you enter the workforce, if you're going to the private, you will still enter the system because at some point, you will now be a taxpayer. You, be you become a purview of the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Even if you go to government, you will have multiple opportunities there to enter the government system, not just through BIR, but through the government agency, which will be employing you. And then fast forward, because we're talking about womb-to-tomb services, by the time you exit this world, you still need to be in the system because others will now be filing in your behalf your death certificate. So imagine if between the moment of your birth and the moment of your death, you will be going through many activities, availing of many government government services, you will have many opportunities to interface with government. What if from the get-go, you are already in that system? Isn't it a beautiful thing for the government to be able not just to provide services for you, but also anticipate your needs over the course of your lifetime? I think that to me ultimately should be the goal of uh, government digitalization, Patricia. I'd like to talk about some of those who have fallen through the cracks because this pandemic forced everyone to go online, right? It was the only way we could talk to people. It was the the only way we could work. However, some people are digital natives, whereas others are digital dinosaurs. Well, you mentioned smishing prior to our interview. How can we laymanize concepts of social engineering to the general public, especially for those who are not adept in this digital world? Like any information and education program, uh, the best way to cascade concepts and ideas is really to approach it from a community-based perspective. And those people from these communities which we have identified as being either underserved by uh, these technologies should be partners in such information and education campaigns. It cannot always be a top
top-down approach. A top-down approach, although it has an advantage of scale, for example, if coming from the central office of any government agency, it will always suffer from, I think, lack of context and even lack of, uh, I should say, relevance. The people in the communities who are better equipped than many others from these same communities should be the logical partners in such information and education programs because they would be in the best position to, let's say, laymanize or bring it down to the level of their uh, fellow community members without, for example, sounding condescending, without sounding uh, as if they're looking down on these people because precisely they come from the same community. I think to me, that's the most crucial aspect of any information and education program and especially if it involves concepts in cybersecurity and data privacy. Do you have any statistics on social engineering or smishing here in the Philippines and in Southeast Asia that you would like to share? Well, the only statistics I can share, Patricia, are the global statistics on cybercrime. And my reason in enumerating this is to drive home the point. There is money to be made in cybercrime. That's why it's proliferating. Cybercrime measured in GDP has already surpassed the illegal drug trade globally. So its uh, absolute dollar value last year, 2021, was $1 trillion. It's projected to grow uh, three times uh, in the next three years to $3 trillion by 2025. Now, even in its current figures, it will rank third. If it were measured as a GDP of a country, it will rank third already behind the United States and China. So that is in the aggregate. So what does this tell us? Both countries that perpetrate hacking, criminal syndicates, and even individuals all combined will make a killing out of this. Uh, it was reported that among the countries that pursue a policy of cybercrime and hacking is North Korea. The hacking of the Central Bank of Bangladesh, some of whose funds eventually found itself into our banking system, for example, was reported to be perpetrated by the Republic of North Korea because of sanctions, they're not able to raise funds in the same manner as many normal countries are able to do. No? So therefore, they will have to resort to many nefarious methods of fundraising. And one of them is uh, resorting to hacking and cybercrime. And you're just talking about a country. And there are many, probably hundreds or even thousands, of criminal syndicate groups who have devoted themselves solely to cybercrime. And not only that, Patricia, cybercrime and hacking has its own value chain. Do you know that that industry is already disaggregated? What does that mean? A criminal syndicate has now uh, gone into specialization. So one group will specialize in developing uh, malware or malicious software. Another group will specialize in the dark web, meaning they will advertise these services. And then another group, which, for example, they offer data storage services, they will store the stolen data there. And then another will be in charge of negotiating, for example, if the cybercrime is ransomware, another group will be in charge of negotiating the ransomware payments. So that's already a very, very uh, highly uh, evolved uh, ecosystem of cybercriminals. And it has its own value chain with each member of that ecosystem specializing in a specific skill set. Do we have any hope? I mean, we have all these highly evolved cybercriminals. What hope do we have? Well, our hope, Patricia, lies in not just individual organizations and individual government agencies getting their acts together. It doesn't lie alone in individual countries deciding to fight cybercrime. It's actually a concert of nations that is needed because by its nature, cybercrime is a transnational crime. It transcends borders. One uh, group can commit a cybercrime in one country targeting individuals or companies in other countries. So by itself, cybercrime 
crime is a transnational problem. Second, both technology and regulations need to keep up. Well, it's always that regulations, most especially, they always fall behind technological developments. Sadly, nefarious groups are always the first to take up technology into the wrong direction. So what we need to do is for the good guys, in the same manner that the bad guys have all come together in that value chain, which I just described a while ago, in the same manner that the bad guys have come together to make money, so should the good guys come together to fight the bad guys. We need that. So it takes good guys, not just from each and every company and each and every government agency. It takes good guys from each and every country to fight this problem together because this is a global problem. Does the Philippine government collaborate with the private sector when it comes to its cybersecurity measures? In my experience, the government indeed works with the private sector. Uh, the last three years when I was in private sector employment, our company was a member of an interagency and private-public partnership in terms of critical infrastructure protection. So we work with government regulators in terms of not just drafting policies and regulations to promote critical infrastructure protection, but to also update the government in our own efforts in the hope, of course, of translating our best practices not just into government policy, but into government practice as well. Apart from the BIR, would you know of any other agencies that are currently digitalizing their systems? Well, I would imagine that it is the order of the day for most, if not all, government agencies. So our National ID program, for example, was uh, given to the Philippine Statistics Authority and it's still uh, ongoing. BIR is one of the agencies that has the highest uptake of digitalization programs. I imagine the Customs Bureau has been working, I think, for the last two decades at least, of increasing automation because automation is, again, one way to decrease, if not altogether, uh, get rid of corruption in our customs procedures. The lesser there is of human intervention, the more efficient and the less corruption there will be. Uh, I've seen that happen. I've seen that with my own eyes in other countries. Documentation comes in via the email or the online portal of the customs administration of one country. Then the moment it enters their ports, the inspection is all automated. Uh, I think the only human intervention there is the approval process, wherein a person, after having gone through the documentation, finally gives that manual approval. So in that kind of setup, it is very easy to trace corruption because you have narrowed down the number of people who need to approve the transaction and to release the cargo, right? So if that sole person, for example, is the one releasing it or approving the release, then it can be traced to that person, right? Uh, as opposed to going through the entire process chain and looking at which point did the corrupt act occur. So you already talk about PSA, customs, BIR. I would imagine even the DOH, for example, for the simple reason that year in and year out we have millions of pesos worth of medicines expiring, it already tells you that the medicine inventory system needs to be modernized. What else needs to be modernized? Our ability to process our patients that avail of public health services and that same data being processed to give insight to the DOH in terms of its health planning uh, year in, year out. I mean, if you think about it, Patricia, just about every government service that is offered needs to be automated and streamlined. So it behooves each and every government agency to take up the challenge of the current president, President Marcos, 
to digitalize, automate, and modernize their processes. I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else you would like to share for our audience? Um, having worn both the hat of a private sector executive as well as now a, a government or a public servant, I should say, from both perspectives, no, even from the perspective of the private sector, and now that I'm in government, a lot needs to be done in terms of not just digitalizing and automating our processes, but also securing them. It's not a chicken and egg thing. It's what I would call a twin approach. While you digitalize, you also increase your security. They need to go hand in hand. So I'd like to see more efforts from government to legislate many of these things. Primarily, for example, a national cybersecurity strategy law mandating, for example, all government agencies to have their own information security officers in the same manner that the Data Privacy Act mandated all private and government agencies that store public information to have their own data protection officers. I would imagine there is the same need for information security officers for each and every government agency and eventually even for each and every private organization that does business, especially significant business in the country. And not only that, we need to educate our people as well because the low-hanging fruit for each cyber criminal is an uneducated user of either mobile, desktop, or tablet technologies, where most of both government services and e-commerce is centered. Therefore, it is incumbent upon uh, both the private sector and the government to increase its efforts in informing and educating our people about the safe use of both the internet and the gadgets that host these services. And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Francisco Ashley L. Acedillo, President of the Philippine Institute of Cybersecurity Professionals, talking to Business World reporter Patricia B. Mirasol about cybersecurity. According to Mr. Acedillo, the goal of government digitalization should be womb-to-tomb services for everyone. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing, he said, if the government could provide services for you and anticipate your needs over the course of your lifetime? Beautiful indeed. But first, the government has to figure out how to stop all those spam messages we're getting on our mobile phones. This B-Side episode was recorded on site in the GSIS building on October 6, 2022. It was produced by Joseph Emmanuel L. Garcia, Earl R. Lagundino, and me, Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening.